I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Loneliness is linked to an increased risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and dementia. What can we do about it? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Social isolation has become an increasingly serious problem. In the Surgeon General's recent report, the authors write that loneliness is as dangerous as smoking. It used to be that people connected at work around the water cooler or the break room. Now, with so many people working remotely, work relationships have suffered. Dr. Robert Waldinger is the director of the longest-running study on happiness. He'll share his insights on why connecting is crucial. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, why overcoming loneliness is important for your health. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. Many Americans are starting the new year in bed with a nasty respiratory infection. The CDC's FluView report shows influenza cases and hospitalizations up from the previous week, so we're well into flu season now. Most of the test results show influenza A dominating with the H1N1 strain most apparent. Influenza is not the only germ making people sick, though. Hospitalizations for COVID-19 went up by 10% in mid-December and still appear to be rising. People who test positive, whether or not they have symptoms, should stay away from others for at least five days, health officials advise. The most common symptoms of the leading variant, JN.1, are sore throat, fever, runny nose and congestion, headache, cough, trouble breathing, and brain fog. People uncertain whether they have influenza or COVID-19 might consider using the Lucera home test. Respiratory syncytial virus is also surging. In most people, this infection causes coughs, sneezes, fever, and wheezing. But for babies and elderly people, RSV can be deadly. Doctors also report that they're seeing more strep infections. This bacterial infection is best known for causing sore throats rather than coughs or congestion. However, if left untreated, it could lead to complications. The start of a new year is an excuse for drug companies to raise prices. An early report has tallied up more than 500 prescription medicines that are expected to cost more in coming weeks. Some companies have announced lower prices, especially on insulin. That's because the American Rescue Plan Act went into effect on January 1st. It requires pharmaceutical manufacturers to reimburse Medicaid on certain drugs if the prices outpace inflation. While companies are trying to avoid penalties by keeping price increases under 10% for older drugs, list prices for new medicines have been soaring. In 2022, newly launched medications cost $220,000 annually on average. Efforts to control drug prices through the Inflation Reduction Act sometimes have unexpected consequences. That appears to be the case with a very popular asthma inhaler called Flovent known generically as fluticasone. The manufacturer, GlaxoSmithKline, just announced that it's taking Flovent off the market. Instead, it will offer an authorized generic fluticasone HFA inhaler that will cost 35% less than the brand name product it's sold for more than 20 years. Because it will continue to be made on the same production line, consumers should pay less for the identical medicine. This may seem like a good outcome for patients and insurance companies, but pharmacy benefit managers have thrown a monkey wrench into the works. Many PBMs are refusing to cover the new authorized generic. That's because it will probably cost more than other generic fluticasone inhalers. Some pediatricians worry that children could find other inhalers harder to use. GSK will be keeping the exact same inhaler technology for its authorized generic. Before a surgeon does an operation, there's a legal requirement to obtain informed consent from the patient. 
How well do consent forms work to let patients know the risks of any given procedure? Researchers analyzed more than 100 procedure consent forms from high-volume hospitals. They found that most were written with complex language that might be hard for some patients to understand. There was considerable variation in the risks that were disclosed as well as the likelihood of success. Hospitals serving vulnerable populations were less likely to include the risk of foregoing the intervention and also less likely to give patients the opportunity to bow out of the surgery. Could doctors benefit from learning how to teach? A program at Boston University, the Educational Fellows Program, has tested this idea. Medical students act as teaching assistants in the physician associate curriculum. This near-peer practice offers them a framework for best practices in both teaching and learning. The directors of the program believe these individuals then do a better job explaining diagnoses and proposed treatments to patients. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. When health professionals think about the factors that contribute to chronic diseases like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, or dementia, they usually focus on things they can measure like cholesterol, blood pressure, body mass index, or blood glucose. They might not take loneliness into consideration. But social isolation may be one of the most important risk factors for overall health, as well as problems like anxiety or depression. Too often, it's overlooked. In 2023, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a report titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. It runs more than 70 pages and points out that lacking social connection is as dangerous as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and worse than physical inactivity or obesity. The big challenge is what can we do to help people overcome loneliness? To help us understand how to meet the challenge, we are talking with Dr. Robert Waldinger. He is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Mass General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Waldinger. I'm so glad to be back with you. Dr. Waldinger, we have talked with you in the past about the importance of relationships in creating a fulfilling life, but many people have been feeling isolated over the last few years. In fact, the Surgeon General recently issued a report, quote, our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So I guess our first question is, how does loneliness affect our physical and our mental health? There's a lot of research into this now. The best theory that we have, backed up by data, is that loneliness leaves us without the buffers of stress that we get from relationships. So you know, if you think about it, things happen to us that are stressful all day long, and the body responds as it should in fight or flight mode. You know, our, our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up. That's all normal. And then the body's meant to calm down again. What seems to happen is that relationships help us calm down. If, if something upsetting happens to me, I can come home and talk to my partner, or I can call someone on the phone, and I can literally feel my body calm down. What we understand is that people who are lonely stay in a kind of low-level fight-or-flight response all the time. So they have higher levels of circulating stress hormones, higher levels of inflammation, and these things gradually break down our body systems. 
It's occurring to me that not every relationship is going to help you calm down. (laughs) So how do we figure out which ones do and which ones don't? That's right. Well, it is a subjective feeling. I mean, you know when someone helps you feel calmer, helps you stay on an even keel, and you know when a relationship agitates you. And I think that's really the discernment that we need to make, that what we do find, they've actually studied really acrimonious relationships, and they find that being in a really acrimonious relationship is worse for your health probably than breaking up for that reason. Dr. Waldinger, I've told this story before. Our listeners are getting very tired of it, but it seems appropriate. Decades ago, we attended a conference at Stevens Point, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, and the physician who was giving the talk said, you really need to hang out with people who make your hands warm (laughs) and avoid those people who make your hands cold. And he said, you know, we're not very good as humans at detecting our internal milieu, uh, you know, how happy we are or how sad we are, how nervous we are or how relaxed we are. But our hands are a really great thermometer, a, a great measure of what's going on internally. So buy a mood ring because <laughs> mood rings from the 60s or 70s, they, they'll, they'll turn color when your hands are warm or when your hands are cold. And you'll be able to see immediately, this person is making my hands cold. There's something happening physiologically. And I think we all have had the experience of feeling anxious, maybe before we have to give some big talk and our hands get very cold and clammy. And then we have other situations where we're with, with, with friends and, oh man, we're having the greatest time and we're talking and laughing and having fun and our hands are nice and warm. So can you, can you give us some sense of how we can detect this and pay more attention to it? Because a lot of times we may be under stress, we may be feeling anxious, and we're not really recognizing what's going on internally. Well, I love that story. And actually, I'm going to use that indicator Let me just say, the talking with you and Terry makes my hands warm, which is (laughs) one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come back. Oh, wonderful. But but I think you are right, and, and that that physician is right, that we're not very good at tuning into our internal signals. But we can learn to get better at that. And another way I think about it is that there are some people who make us more agitated, and there are some people who help us feel calmer. There are some people who energize us positively, and then there are some people who make us feel more negative, who drain us of energy. Those are signals that we can tune into. And when we can, to spend more time with those people who who make our hands warm, who energize us, who help us feel more open to the world. Dr. Weldinger, you just described that chronic stress that isn't alleviated by relationships is going to have a negative impact on our health. And I'm wondering if you might perhaps compare it to other health risks. Uh, Famously, the Surgeon General mentioned smoking in his uh, report on the epidemic of loneliness. Yes. There's good work from a researcher named Julianne Holt Lundstad. She is at the University of Utah, and she helped the Surgeon General with that report. And she did an analysis of many, many studies and was able to estimate with some rigor that being lonely is as hazardous to our health as smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day as having untreated high blood pressure, as being obese. So these risks that we're all so familiar with are no worse than being lonely. That doesn't mean we should ignore smoking and and weight and all that. It means that we really want to pay attention 
to social isolation and loneliness and try to do something about it. Well, it strikes me that when you go into your um, doctor for your annual checkup, if you do that, you're going to— I'm going to do it next week. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it goes really well. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) You're going to be asked if you are smoking. You're going to be asked if you drink. Your blood pressure will be measured. Your your weight will be measured. Your body mass index will be— calculated. Your cholesterol will be measured. All these things will be measured. I don't recall a doctor asking me, are you lonely? Do our physicians check up on that? And if they did, what would they do about it? It's a very timely question because you're right. We haven't asked about that routinely at all. Even psychiatrists don't ask about it as much as they need to. But now, because of the Surgeon General's attention to social isolation and the culture's awareness of it, there are protocols being introduced into primary care visits where they uh, ask each patient, um, how's your social life? Do you see people uh, every week? Uh, Do you go out? That those kinds of simple questions can give physicians an indicator that this person may be at risk. Dr. Waldinger, how does the United States compare to other places, other countries, other cultures? Is the entire world lonely, or are we an outlier? We're not an outlier, sadly. We are among those developed countries um, that have more social isolation than more traditional societies. The reason is pretty clear and simple, that in more traditional societies, there are prescribed roles for everybody in a family, in a community, that people rely on each other. You know, uh, parents rely on grandparents to take care of children. Um, Now, in societies like China, where grandparents were essential to taking care of grandchildren, People are moving away for economic opportunity, away from villages into the big cities. And so China, too, is having an upsurge of loneliness among older people, but also among parents, um, among middle-aged people with children. Um, India is more and more concerned about this. So as countries develop, we break apart these social fabrics that seem to be essential for keeping us connected to each other. You're listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation and co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. And as a Zen master... He teaches meditation. After the break, we'll reminisce about a fabulous reunion. When people live alone, they may find it difficult to nurture close relationships. Is television an antisocial technology? A lot of people traditionally found friends and social connection at work. Remote working made that more difficult. How can we learn social and emotional skills that will help us form and maintain friendships? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Coco Pro Cocoa Extract. New Year's resolutions? Make this year your year. With the proven power of cocoa flavanols, Cocovia supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This year... Give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven Flavanol Bioactive. Get 25% off your Cocovia order from December 29th through January 12th using the discount code capital N, capital Y, capital N, capital Y, capital P-O-D. That's N-Y-N-Y-P-O-D at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. 
This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. The new year is the perfect time to start new healthy habits. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. Social isolation and loneliness are linked to cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, and earlier death. Addiction, anxiety, and depression are more common and challenging when people feel cut off from friends and family. Now that so many people are working remotely, one place people used to make close connections is no longer available. We're talking with Dr. Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. His book is The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Dr. Waldinger, talking about other cultures, when, um, when Terry was doing her field work in medical anthropology in Oaxaca, Mexico, she got an opportunity to hang out with families, with moms, with their kids. Well, families tend to stay in touch um, better than some families do here, for sure. So the the grandparents, the great-grandparents, if they're still alive, all the cousins and the aunts and uncles and all the grandkids. I mean, everybody gets together at least several times a year and sometimes several times a month. Everybody Mm. is aware of what's going on with other people. And we recently had an opportunity to go back to Oaxaca and um, my ayudante, my assistant, when I was teaching in the medical school there, put together a, um, a dinner for many of my students who are now highly regarded <laughs> physicians. In some the of community. them are now retired. Yes, yeah. some of them have yeah. retired. I mean, it was 50 years ago. And um, it, it was just wonderful to reconnect with these people and learn about their lives, what was important to them, all of their family and their connections. These are people who really hang out together. They visit with one another on a regular basis. They have, you know, extended families where their cousins and their their aunts and their uncles and their nephews, people really do connect. And it was such a joy to be back in that culture. And I was thinking, I miss that because yeah. that was so special. It was so, it was heartwarming. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes there are so many people in this country who are either living alone or even if they have relatives, they don't connect with them very often. Why is it important to have these relationships? These relationships make us feel like we belong. They make us feel connected to the world, to other people. And one theory is that we evolved to be tribal, that there was a reason for this, that, that social connection makes us feel safer. Because if you think about it, being all alone, especially if you were out in the wilderness having to survive, as our ancestors might have been thousands of years ago, that it's far safer to be connected to other people. So we know, for example, that when people are alone, they don't sleep as soundly. And there's probably good evolutionary reason for that. So the fact that you enjoyed being reconnected with your Oaxaca friends uh, makes perfect sense. Let me, if I can, remind us about Robert Putnam's work. Robert Putnam is the political scientist at Harvard who works on what he calls social capital. Essentially, how much do we invest in our communities, in each other? And what he found was that starting in the 1950s in the United States, all those the metrics of investing in other people started to decline dramatically. It seemed to have to do with the introduction of television into every living room. But what it meant was that we stopped joining clubs, 
We stopped going to houses of worship. We stopped having family dinners as often or inviting people over to our houses. All of this continued through the 20th century and took a dramatic drop again in the beginning of the 21st century. We think because of the digital revolution, that it didn't start with the internet, but the digital revolution seems to have taken us farther and farther away from each other in the United States. So my suspicion that television is essentially an antisocial technology, I think you've just supported that. <laughs> well, we, we because we stare at screens, we sit, yeah. we sit. In fact, in my family, my, my parents had to put their foot down that we couldn't have the television in the dining room when we were eating dinner because my brother and I wanted to be able to watch TV all the time. It is very seductive. And of course, the internet is even more so. And, uh, you know, I, I, I heard you say that houses of worship are, are no longer uh, the draw that they once were. Are there any ways that communities, congregations, neighborhoods can counteract this general trend towards increasing isolation? Well, a lot has to do with both individual choices we make. So increasing our awareness about this may mean that we will individually do more to be with other people. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the Surgeon General took this on as a pillar of his platform for his tenure in the government. But in addition, we can construct spaces differently. You know, if you think about the people who began to write about how neighborhoods are constructed, we know that there are recipes for social isolation it, with great big high rises where people are anonymous and don't know their neighbors, as opposed to walking neighborhoods, mixed use neighborhoods, where people are more likely to rub elbows, to bump into each other, um, to make connections. Similarly, we can start forming um, initiatives to get people to connect with each other, community initiatives that can, can center certainly around religion, around houses of worship, but they can center around community groups as well that don't have a religious or spiritual function. Dr. Waldinger, I want to talk a little bit about work. Yeah. Because for decades, you know, people would gather around the water cooler and talk <laughs> yeah. about, you know, the, the, the last ba baseball game or football yeah. game. And, and this was actually one of the ways you made friends. You made friends with yes. the people you worked with. And these days, partly because of the pandemic, but partly because it's been changing so radically in the last decade or two, people are working more from home. So they're, they're, instead of gathering with people and chatting and having coffee together or lunch together in the cafeteria, they basically are going to the fridge at home. And they're, if they're meeting, they're doing it on Zoom or some other um, you know, computerized system. And that, that work cooperation has really changed rather radically. And I'm wondering how that impacts people. We think it has a big impact. So you mentioned the water cooler, the iconic water cooler, or it could be the coffee machine, or you know, in these newer companies, the snack wall, where people bump into each other and they strike out conversations. Research shows us that one of the most reliable ways to make new relationships, to make friendships, is to encounter the same people over and over again, particularly around a shared endeavor. So the workplace is classic, right? Where you're all working in the same place, often doing similar work. You have reason to talk. You have icebreakers. You have things you can bring up to start a conversation with a new person. And what we know is that when you do that frequently, some of those conversations will deepen. And some of those conversations will develop into friendships. The other thing I would add is that the Gallup organization did a survey of 15 million workers, and they asked the question, do you have a best friend at work? Meaning, is there anybody you can talk to about personal 
matters. Only 30% had a best friend at work, but those 30% were better at their jobs. They were happier. They were less likely to leave their jobs for a different opportunity. Um, They were more engaged in the workplace and the bottom line improved in these companies when people had friends at work. So what look can look like a distraction at work turns out to be actually an economic benefit, not just a social benefit. Well, that's very interesting because companies are always interested in improving the bottom line. But what you're saying is they may need to rethink how they focus exclusively on productivity and not have people chained to their computers all the time, as it were. Exactly, exactly. You know, the other thing that started to happen is that companies are bringing people back from completely remote work. I'll give you an example. My son works for a tech company in Chicago. It was entirely remote. And now they've said, we want everyone back in the office two days a week. And my son grumbled about it. But now he's sort of saying, you know, it's actually okay. (laughs) Um, Because these connections that we're talking about happen when you're together in person. And so even though it may be inconvenient, it may seem annoying, many people are finding that at least some face-to-face contact in the workplace is enhancing their well-being. Dr. Waltinger, let me ask you about some groups of people that may find it a little more difficult to gather. For example, people with disabilities, people who are older perhaps and retired, or teenagers who obviously they have to go to school, but that doesn't always seem to provide them with the social support that they might need. Well, you've hit on the two loneliest groups in our society. So the loneliest group are people aged 16 to 24, which I was shocked by because I thought, oh, these are kids living their best lives surrounded by people their own age, whether in high school or college. They're the loneliest. And then the second loneliest are older adults. And I think what we're understanding is that there are ways to ease loneliness and to increase social connection. As you can imagine, they're different for younger people and for older people. But paying attention to this and structuring interactions um, can go a long way. So let's say with younger people, when we teach younger people social and emotional skills, it turns out to be hugely impactful in decreasing loneliness and increasing their happiness. It also makes them do better work in their academic subjects, believe it or not, because they're happier in school. And if you're happier, you can listen, you can concentrate. So that's one way. And there are many excellent programs now that teach social and emotional skills to young people. On the flip side of the lifespan in older adult communities, Um, There are all kinds of ways to structure it so that older adults have more interaction, both with each other, but also with other generations. So you may know they have some projects where they put nursery schools next to retirement communities, and they have older adults read to preschoolers. And everybody is thrilled. The preschoolers love it. The older adults love it. So by mixing the generations in ways where they connect, we find that we can ease loneliness and also give young children the attention that they crave. Dr. Weltinger, the idea of teaching children, maybe starting with those kids in nursery school, the social and emotional skills that they will need is brilliant. But it also occurs to me, it might not be too late to learn some social and emotional skills, even when you're 60 or 70. (laughs) What do you think? Yes. Well, you know, what what they do often is they will give these curricula to teachers to teach to their children, right? And the teachers will often come back and say, we need this for us. You know, we need this kind of learning for us about emotions, about dealing with conflict in relationships, about the best ways to make connection. 
And so actually we've done this. We decided in our longitudinal research group that we were going to take much of what we've learned about adult life and put it into a program that adults can use to kind of check in on their lives and improve their relationships and and increase well-being. And so we actually created a program called Roadmaps for Life Transitions that we are introducing in retirement communities, in colleges and universities to try to do just this. Jessica Roldinger, I'm thinking about weather. And you might say, what does weather have to do with any of this? Well, (laughs) when it's cold and cloudy and dreary and rainy and snowy, people tend to hibernate. They tend to, you know, stay inside. And I'm, I'm wondering how we can better improve relationships when we say, oh, I just, I'm not going to go out today. It's, it's too awful out there. How do we nurture and encourage getting together at a time of year when, you know, normally we probably would be in a cave someplace? Right. We want a cocoon. It's a, it's a real issue. And it's not just weather, of, although I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm sitting in Boston where it's getting darker and colder and rainier. But in addition, there is this kind of reluctance to connect with people. There's a little bit of resistance that many of us have to get over. So if you think about it, if someone says to you, let's go to this party, you might say, oh, I just want to stay home and watch Netflix. And the temptation to do that is very great because we are bad at remembering that, oh, you know, actually, when I do go out and connect with people, I usually feel more energized. I usually come home feeling glad that I went. And so some of this is reminding ourselves and reminding each other that actually we feel better when we do more of this active connecting rather than when we stay home and hibernate. How we can structure that, how we can nudge people to do more of that on a bigger scale, I'm not sure, but certainly we can nudge each other. It's one of the reasons actually why people stay healthier when they live with someone, because the other person will nudge you to get out and do things very often that you wouldn't do yourself. You're listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. After the break, we'll learn a little bit more about meditation. Some people are introverts and others are extroverts. Can we help the introverts connect with others for vital relationships? And and Terry, you know, sometimes you can't always tell who's an introvert and who's an extrovert. And, And, you know, it may be hard for adults to make new friends. Often they have less opportunity to meet new people than kids do. How can they overcome this barrier? Dr. Waldinger often invites people in his audience to send a text to a friend they haven't seen in a while. What's the response? We'll also get Dr. Waldinger's advice for facing the coming year with a healthy approach. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor. The biosensor tracks your blood sugar and can help you learn how what you eat and how you sleep and exercise habits affect your health. 
You've probably heard us talk on the People's Pharmacy about the importance of blood glucose levels. Being able to keep blood sugar within a moderate range helps you feel better. And NutriSense can really help with that. I've been very impressed with all the information the Biosensor has offered. Even more important, support from a NutriSense nutritionist can help you make sense of the patterns you see. We've recommended that people with diabetes track their blood sugar response to food choices. In the past, you could do that only with multiple finger sticks. With NutriSense, the continuous glucose monitor, the CGM, does that painlessly, and the easy-to-use app makes the results clear. Using NutriSense to pay attention to my blood sugar helped me lose weight, even though I wasn't trying to. I lost about 7 pounds in a month. Lucas, the NutriSense nutritionist, helped me understand the analysis of my blood sugar. NutriSense is not just for people with metabolic disorders, though. Anyone who wants to feel better and become healthier can benefit. You get a whole month of advice from a board-certified nutritionist, which is invaluable. NutriSense also provides handy learning modules to help you learn more about nutrition and getting the most benefit from what you eat. Take charge of your nutrition today at NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30 where data-driven insights meet personalized nutrition. You'll receive a $30 discount off your first month, which includes two CGM monitors, free shipping, and a month of professional nutritionist support. You can even use FSA HSA account for additional savings. That's NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30. And thank you, NutriSense, for supporting today's show. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. The new year is the perfect time to start new healthy habits. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. Are you an introvert? Or are you maybe an extrovert? Some people have a very hard time reaching out to make friends. Others find it easier, but they may need more contact to feel connected. When's the last time you reached out to someone you like but haven't seen in ages? You know, Terry, I just received a postcard from a childhood friend, and it really lifted my spirits. I I rarely see her because she and her husband live in Massachusetts, but But just getting that card helped us reconnect. We traded text messages, and just that little extra contact was rewarding. We're talking with Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Dr. Waldinger, we understand that you are a Zen master, that you meditate. And when I think about meditation, I think about solo activity, somebody sitting on a cushion in a dark, quiet room and being isolated. Did I get that wrong? Well, you didn't get it wrong. There's a paradox there. So one of my one of my colleagues once called Zen retreats parties for introverts, where you just go and you hang out by yourself on a cushion with a whole lot of other people. And certainly I go into my meditation room every day and I meditate on my own. But one of the things that we find with meditation practice is that it opens us to the world in a kind of paradoxical way. That when I sit and I really pay attention to myself, to the workings of my mind and my body, first of all, I develop a lot more appreciation for the world. It makes me pay more attention when I'm walking along the sidewalk, when I'm looking at a tree, 
when I'm encountering um, a dog uh, walking the other way on the sidewalk and the dog's owner, that, that paradoxically it opens us more to experience because meditation is an exercise in facing toward what's here right now in our experience. So yes, you're right. There's some isolation involved. There's some solo activity. But most of us become more open to the world when we develop a meditation practice. Now, <clears throat> you mentioned introverts. And, you know, there are people who are what I'll call natural extroverts. They, they, they love to reach out. They, um, they're, they're outgoing. They're, they're hugging people. They're shaking hands. They, they've never met someone who's a stranger. And then there are people who are whatever we mean when we say introverts. They, they're shy. They have a hard time making friends. Their natural inclination is to withdraw. And everything that you've told us over the last year or three is that relationships and connection really matter. That's what makes people happy. So how do we help people who are inclined to be introverts and shy and retreat and withdraw? How do we help them connect with other people and have those relationships that you say are so essential? Well, let's start with the understanding that being an introvert is just fine, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, that all of us are somewhere on a spectrum from introverts to extroverts. And a lot of that has to do with inborn temperament. What that means, as far as we know, is that introverts get a lot of their energy and their refueling from alone time, and that's good for them. Whereas extroverts get a lot of their energy from being with other people. Neither one is healthier than the other. What we understand is that introverts need fewer relationships. So they may simply need one or two people who they're close to. And that those people um, are the people they rely on for their connection. If you put an introvert in a big cocktail party, they're, they're going to be stressed out. So the idea is not to try to get introverts to really dramatically broaden their social networks, but instead to help introverts cultivate a few close relationships that they can rely on as they go through their lives. Are there any tools or approaches or tricks, as it were, that you might suggest to someone who says, all right, here I am. I have just moved to a, a new town, let us say, or a new city uh, for my work. I am having trouble making friends. How do, when, when we have kids, we send them to playgroups, we send them to school, they encounter other people. They may still have some trouble making friends, depending on their personality, but adults have much less opportunity to encounter other people. How can they make friends? I would say find some water coolers in your new community. And what I mean by that is find places where you are engaged in something you care about, maybe something you love, and where you encounter the same people over and over again, because that's the recipe for developing some friendships. You know, it could be a gardening club. It could be a softball league. It could be a community group working to mitigate climate change doesn't matter what it is. If you care about it and you're with other people who care about the same thing, easier to start up conversations, easier to develop relationships. It's why we often say to kids when they go to high school or they go to college, join clubs, get involved in activities. Yes, because the activities are enjoyable and constructive, but also just because they help us make connections. You shared with us uh, in a previous conversation a, a trick that you have used when you give a talk, and you, you sometimes ask your audience to get out their cell phones 
and to text somebody that they haven't been in touch with maybe for months or years even and just, you know, say hi. And then at the end of your talk, tell us what you do. I ask people, did anybody get anything back from their text or their email? And all these hands go up. And I ask a few people if they're willing to share what came back to them. And they will tell me, you know, people will say, great to hear from you. Glad you reached out. You know, I've heard from people that one person said, oh, I just had surgery and I'm feeling kind of lonely. I'm so glad to hear from you. Other people immediately make dinner dates. So all kinds of things happen from these tiny actions that we can take every day. And so instead of waiting to go to a talk by Dr. Robert Waldinger, <laughs> yeah. we should just take out our phones and, and text the people we haven't heard from or that we would like to see right now. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, when we studied all these lives over time, we found that the people who were the best at this were the people who did just that, who took these small, frequent actions to stay connected. Well, I think that is wonderful. Dr. Waldinger, one of the things that has happened with our our digital exposure is there's news all the time. And it seems like the news is always depressing. There are disasters. There is polarization. There is lots and lots of, of, of problems. How can we cope with these horrible headlines and still maintain a healthy attitude? Oh, that's such an important question. And I work on it myself every day. What I'm finding is I need to curate it. I need to be careful about what I put into my mind. The Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh used to say that we put into our minds what will create the content of our minds, and we need to remember that, right? So I limit my exposure to the news. I don't watch news because the images are often traumatizing. I will read the paper. I will listen often to NPR for a limited amount of time, and then I will turn it turn away from it. The other thing I do, which I used to think was hokey, and now I realize is, is not hokey at all, is I call to mind the things that I'm grateful for and the things that are good in the world. So, you know, news focuses us on what's negative because that that sells newspapers, it gets our eyeballs to, to click on different links, right? But if we call to mind what's right in the world, it's a, it counters that bias toward negativity that the news pulls us toward. And so I remember, my gosh, I've got a roof over my head. I've got a good partner. I've got friends. I've got students who still care a lot about making the world a better place as young psychiatrists, right? So, and, and so many good people out there in the world doing good things all day, every day. And when I actively call those things to mind, it just puts into perspective the, the horrors that I read about in the news every day. And that helps me to go on. Well, our listeners are probably saying, well, that's easy for Dr. Robert Waldinger. <laughs> I mean, he is, after all, a psychiatrist. He is, after all, a Zen master. He meditates. So he can tune out all those horrible headlines. But what about me? And I ran into a, um, a very high-powered surgeon uh, not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about meditation. And she said, you know, I took a meditation class, uh, mindfulness, and I enjoyed it. It was very relaxing and very meaningful for the two months that I participated. But of course, I, I got back to my regular life and I'm always very busy. I put in, you know, 12, 14 hour days and I'm writing research papers all the time. And I've got colleagues who are depending on me. So, you know, I just didn't have time and I'm maybe not 
inclined to do meditation. Maybe it's just not my thing, but, but I kind of miss it a little bit, but I just can't work it into my daily schedule. And I suspect that there are lots of people who say, eh, meditation, it sounds nice, but I just don't have time. I have a, a different approach. Um, I cheat. I I don't take time to sit on a cushion or in a chair and, and meditate. But I do set aside some time after we're in bed and we've turned out the lights. I set aside some time to think about the people that I love. <laughs> and I do the same thing in the morning when I wake up. Is I mean, that is cheating. It's not really meditating. But I find it helpful. Huh. Well, it's not cheating at all. So meditation is not for everyone by any means. Most people don't meditate. Many people should not meditate. It's not right for them. Meditation is just one way of coming into the present moment, right? And calling to mind the experience of being alive right now. So, you know, what you do when you think of the people you love is you're calling to mind those people who nourish you. That's a very helpful practice. You don't need to be sitting on a cushion to do any of that. You could be sitting at a stoplight in traffic and just pay attention to your breathing for two or three breaths. And that alone brings you back out of the automatic pilot of our thinking mind and back into the present moment. So there are all kinds of ways of doing this and actually, if you think about it, a surgeon has to be very focused on the present moment when she or he is doing an operation. That can actually be sustaining because it's it's part of what we call this, this experience of flow, where you're just so in an experience that time just goes by and that you're not lost in busy mind, in what we call monkey mind. So, so there are all kinds of ways of refueling, of nourishing ourselves that don't have to include meditation. Dr. Waltinger, in the minute we have left, I wonder if you have some advice for our listeners that you have culled from your studies over the years that you have distilled in The Good Life to help us all face the coming year with a healthy approach. I would say turn toward the people who help you feel more hopeful and help you feel more open to the world. Turn away from those voices that make you feel more afraid and more closed off when you can. And turn toward those activities that nourish you, that help you feel more energy, that help you feel more positive. Turn toward the people and the activities that are energizing for you. And maybe get a mood ring so you know who those people are. <laughs> exactly. You know, or just talk to Joe and Terry. I mean, that's, that's the other possibility. <laughs> Anytime. Dr. Robert Waldinger, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. And we do hope we'll have another chance to talk with you in the future. Well, this is always a pleasure, and my hands are very warm today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of The Good Life. Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. The new year is the perfect time to start healthy habits. Can you make Cocovia a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com.
Today's show is number 1,368. 1368. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Is there someone you would like to talk with again after a long absence? Who might that be? What's holding you back from following Dr. Waldinger's suggestion to text that person right now or just send them an email. If that's inconvenient, why not send them a postcard? You know, I have found lately that writing actual notes on paper is surprisingly satisfying, and I do hear back from friends who love getting a handwritten message. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter. You'll get the latest news about important health stories. And when you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast. You'll know ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.